This text that we're looking at today contains two of what I think are the most, um, uh, I don't want to use the word abused, but at least used verses outside of the context for which they're given. And I think maybe so far in my study of Matthew, uh, to be clear, this has been maybe the section that has been most hard to set in its context and to understand how it relates to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But I think the answers are there, and I would like to share them with you. Uh, The first one that gets used completely out of context often is the opening verses in uh, chapter chapter 7 here, verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And so often this verse is lifted out of its context uh, and, and really abused, uh, as people tell us sometimes, that if we just ask God for anything with enough faith, it will be granted to us. And we point to texts like this and say, see, God wants you to have anything and everything you ask for. And that is not, I believe, what this verse is about. The second one that often gets pulled out of its context is verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And interestingly, even though it gets entirely removed from its context, and it is really, really important in its context, I don't think it's often abused. This verse is used to remind us that however we want to be treated, we should treat people in that fashion. The problem with that is, let me just ask us all, how are you doing with that? I expected more like, ooh, (laughs) I heard a few through there. But if we're honest with ourselves, most of us probably struggle with this. We treat people in ways that we would not want to be treated. But this verse is not just, again, as I've said over and over through the Sermon on the Mount, random thoughts with Jesus. Look at the first word of verse 12. It is so. And this is connected to the previous verses, and maybe even more than that, to the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. It was not a new idea in Jesus' day. I don't think people would have heard this and thought, wow, that's brilliant, we've never heard anything like this before. I do think, however, they would have heard it and would have thought to themselves, that's different than what we have heard heard before. There was a rabbi... Uh, around the time of Jesus, who certainly was alive during Jesus' time, uh, a very famous rabbi, his name was uh, Hillel, and he said this about 20 uh, AD. He said, what thou hatest, do to no man. What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. That is the whole law. The rest is commentary. And there were, there's quotations in the apocryphal book of Tobit that share the same idea. However, the idea that had been presented throughout most of Jewish history was not one that said, do unto others what you would want them to do to you. It was the negative side of that positive challenge. It was, do not do to others what you would not want others to do to you. Now, do you see the difference between the two? It is a much higher standard to say, look, we don't, Jesus is commanding us not just to not do the things that we don't want others to do, but to do the things that we want them to do. Certainly seeking and knocking and asking cannot mean 
that you get everything that you want, especially if that is understood in the context of the whole Bible. And you're going to get several Bible study tips along the way today, uh, but the first Bible study tip I'm going to give you is context always matters. Context is king when it comes to understanding Scripture. Not only the immediate context of any verse you're looking at, but its context within the whole of Scripture. I had a friend who used to say that a text taken out of context becomes a pretext for your proof text. In other words, when I take a text of Scripture and I pull it out of its context, I can use it and manipulate it for uh, ways uh, I want to in order to prove my own point. But as those of us were reminded yesterday who were at the marriage seminar here, which was wonderful, by the way, if you weren't here you missed it. God didn't just give us a, uh, a, a Bible that is organized topically that we can turn to and just pick something out of. We have to understand this grand narrative of God's redemption. Let me share with you some of the, the aspects of God's narrative that remind us that that can't be what this verse means. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Matthew 24, 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Acts 14, 22, uh, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famineness or nakedness or danger or sword? Uh, Paul is not writing these things assuming that those things cannot happen. In fact, if you consider what Paul went through in 2 Corinthians, he went through some really, really hard stuff. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the... Oh, I think I read that one already. Romans 12.12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And so my understanding of today's text is built entirely on its context. And I think what's going on here, even though we have looked for weeks and even months at the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, remember Jesus taught this for days, this is the Cliff Notes version, what we, what we find here is Jesus bringing the, the main body of his Sermon on the Mount to conclusion. For those of us who are teachers or preachers, oftentimes we write the body of the message and then we, uh, we write an introduction and we write a closing. And I think chapter 5, verses 3 through 16 of Matthew are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is getting our attention. He's telling us, blessed are. Remember, the word there is not eulagetos, which is often what we think of with blessed, but makarios, happy. Happy are those. Happy are those who are poor in spirit, who, who are uh, hungry for God. And we see all of these statements that Jesus makes telling us how in his kingdom to be happy, and that should catch our attention. Lord, I want to know how to be happy. And then he tells us that we are to be salt and light, salt this preserving agent of, of righteousness in the world and many other things, and light a way to see in the darkness. 
And then I think in chapter 5, verse 17, and you can turn there if you would like to, we see Jesus transition to the main body, the main point of the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to tell us uh, how to live in his kingdom. But, but he comes not to abolish the law and the prophets. And this is an important statement because he's about to contrast so much of what they've been taught by the religious leaders of the day, by the Pharisees. He's about to correct much of their thinking. And he, he wants us to understand, he says, look, I'm not coming to do away with the law and the prophets. I'm, I'm coming to fulfill them. I'm coming to, to do everything that they say. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is how kingdom people like you and me who have trusted Jesus, how we are to live, how we are to fulfill his words. His fulfilling of the law, though, we should understand in great contrast to our kingdom living. See, we're, we're law breakers. As we read in Romans, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Why did God give so many laws? Well, if we understand Galatians properly, he gave us so many laws so that we would break them. Not because he wanted to impose punishment on us that we didn't deserve, but because we were already lawbreakers. And as Galatians tells us, all of those laws that we can't keep were given by God, by, by a grace of God, to, to be a tutor that shows us our need for Christ. God gave us the law to show us that we can't keep the law, that we need his help, that we need his redemption, that we need his forgiveness. So we're all lawbreakers. But Jesus was a law keeper. Uh, you know, I think if you, uh, if you don't read through your Old Testament regularly, I would highly encourage you to do that. And as you read through these laws, and you're like, ceremonial laws and civil laws and religious laws, and man, this is boring stuff. You want to know how to make it not boring? Read through all that stuff and remind yourself, Jesus kept that one, and that one, and that one. And that one, and that one. He never broke a single one of them. We're condemned to death because we are lawbreakers. And he was condemned to death to die in our place. He was forsaken by the Father so that we wouldn't have to be. He obeyed it all. And not so that he might do away with it, even though there's parts of it, particularly ceremonial and the religious parts of it, not so much the moral parts of it, he did away with it because he was able to fulfill it all. And then, in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us how to live in the kingdom. And if I could just summarize that quickly, uh, he gave us instructions on anger and how just being angry at somebody is murder and divorce 
and oaths and keeping our word and retaliation and loving our enemies and practicing our righteousness not to be seen but before God in how we give and how we pray and how we fast. He gave instruction on laying up our treasures not on earth but in heaven. How to not be anxious in this world by fixing our priorities on the right thing and understanding his power to control all of life. And then maybe some of the most difficult, not passing judgment on others, but removing the log that is in our eye before we address the speck in someone else's. And if you've been paying attention over the last months, it probably, and, and maybe even should, maybe this is a little bit of the point because I think our text today explains some of that to us, maybe it feels a little impossible. Because it is. We're lawbreakers, right? We get this stuff wrong. And, and we're supposed to, though, now even though we, we've come to Christ and, and we've received forgiveness... Anybody read the Sunday paper? I don't know if you read the Sunday paper, but I'm going to get on a soapbox for a minute. I got the Sunday paper this morning. I opened the door to take the garbage out. The newspaper fell inside. I was reading through it, and you know, uh, in the Sunday morning paper, there's always at the back of one of the sections, I don't even know what the section is, but there's this religious thing, and it was uh, this guy, Rabbi Geller or whatever, I can't even remember his name, uh, this God Squad guy, and somebody wrote him a question. Well, I grew up in a Lutheran church, and the Lutherans said we were the only church, even though there was a Catholic church right across the street. And what about the Mormons and the Hindus and the Muslims? And, the, and he goes on and on and on. Rabbi Geller's answer to the problem was this. He says, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe. All religion is the same. And its benefit is that it makes people better. What if your religion says you're supposed to kill and enslave the infidel? Does it make people better? What if your religion says you're supposed to have caste systems and shun and castigate those who aren't like you? Does it make people better? Is the point of it making people better? I would say there is not one generic faith that comes in many flavors, I would say there are only two systems of faith in the whole world. There is that of human accomplishment, that you can work to make yourself a better person, or you can work to earn favor with God, or there is divine accomplishment, that Jesus did what you and I are unable to do. And we don't contribute anything to what he has done. He obeyed the law. He died paying the consequence for our sin. He was buried in our grave. And he was resurrected three days later. And that the only thing you bring to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Everything else is you trying to earn your way. You can either trust yourself or trust Jesus. And so he was right in that there is a whole bunch of faiths that basically teach the same thing. You have the ability to work your way to God. But let me ask you again, in all of these things, anger, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving enemies, practicing righteousness, lust, giving prayer, fasting, laying up treasures in heaven, anxiety, passing judgment on others, removing the log for your own eye, let me ask the question I've already asked once today. How are you doing? 
If, I, if my hope is dependent upon myself, I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble. But our hope is not dependent upon ourselves. It's upon Christ. But we are still called to respond to what he has done for us by grace, through faith, because of our sin, with right and righteous kingdom living. How in the world do we do that? Well, I think that's what today's text is about. Because when we look at chapter or verse 12, we see in many ways the summation of what he has said. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For, let me remind you of chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 14, not 14, um, chapter 5, what did I say it was? Verse 17, I'm sorry. Uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And then here in chapter 7, verse 12, he says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is how to live out the law, and the prophets. This is what we call an inclusio. What's an inclusio? It's like bookends that start the beginning and the same. Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount by saying, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And once we have trusted Christ to be the fulfillment of all of that before God for us, now we see how to live as kingdom citizens we see that we're all still struggling to live as kingdom citizens. And then we get to this Mount Everest of ethics where we're told to treat others the way we would want to be treated because on all of this is the law and the prophets. The Sermon on the Mount opens with Jesus fulfilling the law and closes with Jesus telling us how to do our part in living that out. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Jesus. Imagine being with Jesus for 33 years as he lives out all of the law and prophets and particularly this. There is not one moment in Jesus' life where he didn't treat others the way he would have have wanted to have been treated. Even in his forceful moments and his tender ones. Even when he's tough and when he's incredibly gentle. But again, consider all that Jesus has taught on the Sermon on the Mount. How do we live all of that out? Well, our first answer is we can't, and therefore we need Jesus to be righteous for us. But our second answer, how we live this out, the point of what Jesus is telling us, is here in this text. And what I want us to see today is two tools for living out the Sermon on the Mount. Two tools for living out the Sermon on the Mount. On the mount. Number one, and you should have slides for these, uh, both our purpose statement. I think there's somebody back there in the sound booth, asleep, maybe, I don't know. Uh, maybe somebody could go back there and move along a couple of slides for us because um, you got fill in the blanks back there. Uh, but we got uh, two tools for living out the Sermon on the Mount. Alex, can you move us forward two slides, please? There we go. First one. First one is prayer. The first means by which Jesus is teaching us to live out the Sermon on the Mount is by prayer. He says in verse, verses 7 and 8, Ask, and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. These three uh, words here, they're all present tense imperatives. They're commandments of what you must do. That's the imperative part. The present tense is that you must always be doing them. It would read something like this to a Greek speaker. Um, Ask and keep asking and it will be given to you. Seek and keep seeking and you will find. You must knock and keep knocking and it will be opened to you. And there's almost this growing progression as these unfold, each one becoming more intense. There's a big difference between asking for something and seeking something. And there's a difference between seeking something and and knocking at the place where you think that something is actually to be found. There's There's to be this growing desire in us to live out the Sermon on the Mount. We ask and keep asking. We seek and keep seeking. We knock and keep knocking. But this teaches something us something about ourselves. And that is that if we're going to live out the Sermon on the Mount, we need somebody to provide something for us that we can't provide for ourselves. The assumption of prayer here is an assumption that we need something that we don't have. We have to ask God because we need something external to us. We we need the righteousness of Christ applied to us in order to be righteous. We need the Spirit of God working in us in order to live out the Sermon on the Mount. We can't muster up kingdom living by trying harder or self-help or therapy. I'm not trying to be critical of any of those three things. You can go to all the therapy you want and ignore your Bible, and you'll be frustrated. You can go to every self-help guru you want and neglect prayer, and it won't work. Because we need something that comes not from us, not from just mustering up kingdom living by our own trying, but something that is, is given to us by God. And it's not that there's not effort on our part. It's that our effort, and listen very carefully to what I'm about to say here, because the order of what I'm about to say is not incidental. Our effort at kingdom living is supplemental to God's, not the other way around. God does not supplement what's mostly in us. We supplement what he is doing in us. Yes, we are absolutely called to put to death what is earthly in us. We are to lay aside all the sin that easily entangles us. But Paul in Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He started it, and he will finish it, and our effort is not the main driving force of our sanctification. Our efforts to live out the Sermon on the Mount, to kingdom living, is supplemental to what he is doing. We see a very similar passage in James chapter 4. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. One of our values... Uh, here at Trinity as we think about ministry, and we've talked about these in our services, is dependence. 
there's two veins to that, uh, that dependence, and that is, uh, one, we want to be dependent upon each other. One of, the, one of the greatest damages that the American dream has done to our faith is by, try, is by teaching us that our lives are solo projects. Your Christian walk is a community project. When somebody comes to you and says, hey, you've got a log in your eye or a speck, you can't say that's none of your business. Because our lives, our spiritual lives are a community project. We need each other. And if I might for a moment suggest that, you know what, you know what most of us do when we've been hurt by other people? is withdraw from other people. We get hurt by a church and we withdraw from churches. We get hurt by people and we withdraw from people. But if I understand the implications of the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit, it is this, that God uses people to heal the wounds of other people. God uses the healthy presence of people in our lives to heal the wounds of unhealthy people in our lives. And if you're seeking to have your wounds healed by removing yourself from people, you're condemning yourself to not find healing. We want to be dependent upon each other. But more than that, we want to be dependent upon God. And I think the barometer of our dependence upon God is prayer. If your life is prayerless, then fundamentally, whether you would say it with your words or not, you think that you are good enough and strong enough to do all of this on your own, in your own strength, on your own might, by your own power. But when we realize that we're not, that we'll never be the husbands, the wives, the parents, the citizens, the employers, the employees, the friends, the neighbors, the evangelists, the the servants that we want to be apart from God providing something that is external to us, that we need him to start and finish the work and do everything in between and our effort is supplemental to that, it'll never happen. If you want to live out the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to happen in dependence on God in prayer. Why? Verse 8. For the result here is that everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened to you. I don't think what Jesus is telling us is that if you want something, that, that you're just, hey, you know, I'll give it to you. I think what Jesus is telling us is that the prayer that God answers is the prayer that says, Lord, make me like you. Help me to live out the kingdom today. Help me to live out my, your kingdom with my family and with my friends and with my coworkers and in my leisure time, in my recreation. Help me to live out the kingdom 
uh, values and ways. Lord, help me to be less sinful today and, and more holy and therefore more happy. That is the prayer that, that God answers. That's the prayer he's delighted to answer. Secondly, the second uh, uh, tool we have for living out the Sermon on the Mount is doctrine. Doctrine, I know, that's a bad word. But guess what? Everybody has doctrine. The army has doctrine. Doctrine is not this scary thing. Doctrine, uh, even though it's a word that freaks people out, it's just what you believe. All the word doctrine means is, is what you believe. And when we talk about doctrine in the church, what we particularly mean is what you believe about God. And here, in this passage, in order to live out these kingdom values, I think what God is at, or what Jesus is, uh, is calling us to do is to consider God's character. And this is absolutely connected to the idea of prayer. It's absolutely connected to the idea of asking from God what glorifies him. But let's consider this. Uh, Jesus is calling us here in verse 9 to consider God's character in comparison to that of an earthly father. Now, some of you had earthly fathers that were mean and maybe vindictive or miserly or selfish. And what Jesus is calling us to do is not compare God to that view of a father. How do I know that? Because look at the language he uses. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. So there's the father that we're trying to, uh, to understand in this life. A father who is evil because we're all evil, we're all impacted by sin. We're all lawbreakers. Don't, don't get Jesus wrong here. He's not saying we're all as bad as we could be. He's just saying we're all bad. We've all broken the law. We've all been guilty of sin. But even this father who is evil is a father who knows how to good, give good gifts to his children. And so if you didn't have that father, you might have to consider other people. Or you might just have to do the disciplined work of saying, I'm not going to apply my view of my dad to God. Because he got it wrong. But what Jesus wants us to do is compare a, a, a father who, though evil, knows how to good gifts to God. And he says, how much more will your father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask? Jesus is not more, or, or God the Father is not more miserly than a father who give, knows how to give good gifts. He is more generous. Again, if, uh, if you were here yesterday at the marriage seminar, Paul Tripp said that the DNA of love is generosity. The DNA of love is generosity, and he quoted for us John 3.16. And without a bunch of uh, exegetical gymnastics for us, he he showed us what this verse does actually mean. And I'm going to unpack a little of that for you. For God so loved the world. And I've talked about this before, but the word so in Greek, it's, uh, it's not, it doesn't mean uh, look how big the God's, God's love is for you. It doesn't mean God loved the world so much. 
It means thusly. It means in this manner. It means God loved the world, therefore he did something. What did he do? He gave his only son. God loved the world in this manner that, or with the result that, he gave his only son. It's it's God's love to us that leads us or leads him to generosity towards us, to generosity and salvation. If If good earthly fathers know how to give generously, how much more does God, who didn't even spare his son, know how to give good gifts? And we have to be careful here not to distort parables. Because Jesus You know, he tells us this parable of a man who's in his house and he has a guest who comes over late at night and he comes in and he says, hey, give me something to eat. And and in that culture, you, you opened your home to people and you provided food for people. It was a very hospitable culture. And so, you know, if somebody came to your house in the middle of the night and needed food, you You did it. But you couldn't go to the local 24-7 mart and buy some flour and some oil and make them bread. And so this this individual who says, I don't have anything to make you, he's got to go to his neighbor. And so he knocks on his neighbor's door and he says, get up. And he says, no, I've got guests. I need to borrow some flour. And the guy says, my family and I are in bed. Leave us alone. But the guy keeps knocking. No, get up, get out of bed. And then Jesus says it's because of this man's impudence. It's because of his persistence that the neighbor gets out of bed and comes to the door and gives him what he needs. Now, here is Bible study tip number two. Allegories and parables don't play by the same rules. An allegory, which is comparing something with like or as... The church is the bride of Christ. You can mine Scripture for everything it means to be a husband and a wife biblically and then apply that to Christ's relationship to the church. You can wring every drop out of that because it's an allegory. But parables, you can't do that. Parables have one point and one point alone, and when you take a parable past its single point, you're in trouble. So the point of Jesus' parable about the neighbor is not that God is stingy and therefore we must be persistent. The point is just that we must be persistent. And if you take that parable beyond that point, you're going to come up with all kinds of crazy things. The point of that parable is not about the character of God. It is about uh, the way we should approach prayer with persistence and patience. It's not about God and his stinginess. What picture is painted for God of us for God is that of a father who knows how to good, give good gifts. And if an earthly father knows how to, good, to give good gifts, how much more God who is not evil. God gives generously to those who ask. Parents, is your first move towards your children yes? Or is your first move towards your children no? 
And you should not tell your kids yes to everything. But your first move should be towards yes. And then say no when there's a reason to say no. Not your first move being towards no and only saying yes when there's a reason to say yes. Because God's character is one of generosity, of graciousness, of giving, because he loves us. Now, how do these two things come together? Well, when we ask from God what he must supply, knowing that he's a generous father, in order to live out his kingdom values, we can expect him to say yes. So when we pray things like, Lord, help me to live more like your son today. He's delighted to say yes. When we say things like, Lord, help me to win the lottery today. He might say something like, why? So you can fall into the lie of believing that you can live without me? See, he's going to say no when he has a reason to say no. I think it's those of us who are like, man, I'd love to win the lottery. I've never played the lottery, but, um, you know, if if that's how we're living, I'd love to win the lottery. I pretty much figure we're never going to win the lottery. Because if my prayer is, Lord, make me wealthier, but it's not about for his glory, why would he say yes? And we shouldn't think that that's because he's not generous or because he's a megalomaniac. It's none of those things. It's because he knows how to give good gifts. And he says no for a reason. This is not a blanket statement that you can have anything you want. What Jesus is telling us is that all of the law and prophets, what he came to fulfill and how we live as kingdom citizens is built up in the idea that we should treat others the way we want to be treated. But because that's not in us, because that's impossible apart from his help, we should prayerfully ask him for what we need to live that out. That's why verse 12 starts with the word, so. Because we're called to all of these things, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And so we pray to God, asking him to give us what is external to us, what we need him to provide for us, but we do so not thinking like, man, I better pray this through because God's a miser and he rarely listens and he's probably not going to give me what I want anyways. No, we should go into prayer understanding that it is God's delight to tell you yes to every prayer you ever ask him that is actually good for you. And he only says no when it's not. He only says no when it's not actually good for you. When we ask for what we cannot provide for ourselves, it's a prayer he loves to answer. And when we consider what he is like, really there's, there's a whole lot in, in, in becoming what we behold. We've talked about that a lot before, and I'm not going to elaborate today, but we become what we behold. So let me close with uh, just some questions for food for thought. How would you want to be treated if? This is the game we're going to play. How would you want to be treated if? How would you want to be treated if you were an unbeliever and nervous to meet those judgy Christians you've 
heard about? How would you want to be treated by your spouse when you act wrong? How how would you want to be treated by your boss or by your employee? How would you want to be treated by somebody who disagrees with your politics? How would you want to be treated by somebody who knows, quote unquote, juicy information about you? Who knows those skeletons in your closet? How would you want to be treated by your parents? How would you want to be treated by somebody who knew how to inherit eternal life when you didn't? Let that one sink in for a minute. If you did not know Jesus and your friends did, would you want them to have a 10-step, five-year plan to telling you about Jesus? Or would you want them to come to you and say, I got the most important thing you'll ever hear? How would you want somebody to treat you if you didn't know Jesus? Do you want them to be bold or timid? How would you want to be treated by God? When we live this out, not just negatively, but positively, that's what kingdom living is. What is the secret to all of that? Here it is. Every single one of your needs, not once, not desires, but every single one of your needs can only be met by God. And when you seek to have your needs met there by him, when you get up a little earlier in the morning and spend time in his word until those needs have been met by him, you will be freed up to live like a kingdom citizen, to live generously like God, to live not making demands, unfair demands on other people to meet your needs that only God can meet. When all of your needs are met in Christ, then and only then will you be freed up to do unto others what you would have others do unto you. Father, forgive us for being kingdom citizens who fail all the time. Forgive us for not being what we ought to be. And supply for us the righteousness of Christ and and put it in our hearts to have our needs met by you so that we might be free to love others as we want to be loved. And that in that we might be like you. May it be for your glory and for our good. Amen.